So we're back in Nahum, uh, and we made it pretty much through chapter one, so we're going to do chapters two and I think three today. And chapter one, just for review, was uh, this, this encouragement written to the people of Israel that while they had been destroyed and uh, captured by the nation of Assyria and carried off to their kingdom, God was not done with them and God would punish Assyria for what had taken place. In fact, chapter 1, verse 15 summarizes what the Lord is going to do with the, the uh, quote that's, that's used in two other places of the Bible. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is completely cut off. We talked about the fact that ultimately that is what we are looking forward to, is the culmination of all things where we can be at peace, where wickedness no longer exists, even in our own hearts, where we are no longer tempted even by our own flesh, but instead wickedness is completely cut off. That good news that, that uh, there is, there is a, a future for us in spite of everything going on around us. Now, uh, timing of things is sometimes interesting when you're teaching, and certainly the passages we're going to be in are, are interesting because uh, the nation of Israel still exists today, and they are being assaulted or were assaulted in a similar, with a similar level of animosity and a certain uh, level of atrocity that would have been perpetrated by the nation of Assyria was recently carried out by Hamas. And we're going to see then, we'll be able to directly apply some of those things to the world we live in today. It is also interesting because what, what holiday is upon us? See if you guys get it right. What holiday is in, in the next two weeks? All Saints Day. All, very good. All Saints Day. And Ethan's birthday. Um, <laughs> that's what I was actually thinking of. But um, yeah. And the day before that is? Halloween, right? And so we're going we're gonna to touch on that. Um, and you're like, well, what the heck? That's not in Nahum. But it kind of is, actually. Um, so let's start in uh, chapter 2 here. The one who scatters has come up against you, men, the fortress. Watch the roads, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will, will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches, the shields of the mighty men are colored red, the warriors are dressed in scarlet, the chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly in the streets, they rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches, they dash to and fro like lightning flashes. We see here in, in chapter 2 the prediction of the, of the overthrow of Nineveh and what's going to take place. And Nahum is speaking, God is speaking directly through Nahum to Nineveh saying uh, that the one who scatters has come against you. This is actually uh, who is now the king of Babylon. Babylon was kind of a, a, a province that actually belonged to Assyria. One brother received 
uh, Nineveh and the other received Babylon. Babylon, even though they were brothers, tried to rebel and that was squashed and now another. This thing is not at all right. I have no idea. But it's really uncomfortable. It doesn't go that way either. We'll try and see if that stays in place. Um, but uh, the, the king of Babylon, Nabopolassar, is the one who is coming up against them, um, not related at all to who is the king of, of uh, Nineveh. And he's coming, and, and chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that it's the Lord that's doing such things. He is the one that is doing this, and he's doing this because his goal is to restore the splendor of Jacob or the splendor of Israel and the splendor of Jacob, and to devastate those who have crushed them. God is still interested in working with Israel. Israel has rebelled against God. There are things that are going to be, that we know about Nineveh, that while Israel was not to that extent, they certainly were involved in. They deserved the punishment of God, but God was continuing to work with them because they were his people. Out of them would come the Messiah, and out of them would become the kingdom that his son would reign. And verses three through seven then give us this picture of what is taking place in this attack. And what's interesting is this would have been written in, we think somewhere around 663 to 654 BC. And it's really hard for my mind to count years backwards, but you gotta do that because it's leading up to uh, AD. So in BC 653 to 654, and the fall of Nineveh is taking place in 612. We know that this, this prophecy came after 663, or we make that assumption because in chapter 3, it's going to talk about, um, in verse 8, the fall of Noaman or Thebes, which we have the date of when that took place based on history, which was 663. So the fact that Nahum is making reference to that, we date this sometime after 663 three to 654. But the clarity which, with which he describes the events in these two chapters is to the extent that modern historians struggle with placing, placing Nahum in his time period when you do, because it looks like he's writing a report of what took place on, in the destruction as they go back and they dig up Nineveh and they're like, this is exactly how Nahum described. So we have here this, this description starting in three, the shields of his mighty men are colored red, the warriors are dressed in scarlet, the chariots are in flashing steel. When he is prepared and the cypress are brandished, the chariots race madly in the streets, they rush wildly in the squares, their appearances like torches, they dash to and fro like lightning flashes. This is a picture of the army having broken through the walls, through, not through the walls, the walls are you know, 60 feet tall, they're not breaking through those. They've broken through the gates, they've come in actually through where some of the water flows into the city, and they are uh, this massive city now, the largest city in the world at the time, is just total and utter chaos. He remembers his nobles, they stumble in their march, they hurry to her wall and the mantlet is set up or the covering is set up. The gates of the rivers are open, the palace is dissolved, it is fixed, she is stripped, she is carried away and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. 
So they are completely and totally overwhelmed by their opponent. Now, uh, as we look at this, well, we'll look at it in the future, there was a siege that occurred before they finally broke through. And this is the picture of what has taken place when they broke through. Now, Nineveh itself was, verse 8, it's going to mention that it was like a pool of water throughout her days. If you go there now, this is outside of the Iraqi city of Mosul. And if you go there now, it's nothing but a desert. There, and, and at that time, it would have been nothing but a desert with a river running by it. But what they did is they set up these massive aqueducts that would bring water from as far as 50 kilometers away. Now, if you know anything about geology, you know that, that yeah, you have where the rivers run. If you want water that's not coming through your river naturally, you've got to go over hills to get to another river and bring it. And that's what they did. They built this incredible aqueduct system. Now, aqueduct in my mind, I think of the Roman aqueducts that are like, I don't know, as wide as a street, some of them up on arches, crossing other creeks on bridges, you know, maybe, maybe four or five feet deep. These were enormous limestone brick structures that were laid on the ground as they carried over the ground. They, their width in places would be, I don't know, three or four times the width of this, of the length of this room, lined with limestone. And on top of that, they'd put a waterproof cement so as to not lose any of the water. And they'd carry all the water into the city that way. They also had the, the arches and when they came to a river that they weren't using, they would cross over that river. They'd have a bridge there that these giant aqueducts would flow over. They have some of them there today that you can go look at. In fact, they have, uh, um, they, they spent the time to draw artwork on these things. <clears throat> and so carved into the stone, there's even artwork on each individual limestone that was, that was placed to build the foundations of these things. Just absolutely amazing. And what it resulted in is Nineveh itself was a, a city that had more water than it could possibly need. Um, in the middle, it was an oasis in the middle of this desert. In fact, historians believe, historians have never pinpointed where exactly the hanging gardens of Babylon were. Obviously, you think, well, they were in Babylon. The challenge is, is that the description of Nineveh at that time more closely resembles what we think the, the hanging gardens of Babylon were. Suffice it to say, the city had plenty of water to survive a siege, and the city had plenty of water to enjoy being the size as it, as it was, because even in ancient times when they didn't have toilets and things, you still need lots of running water for a nation that size and for a city that size to survive. And so it just, it shows you the wealth and the advancement of the city itself. And, and Nahum, the Lord through Nahum is describing exactly what it is that he is going to do to Nineveh in taking away the greatness that they are. And part of their greatness was the water supply and the water flow that she had. So in verse eight, though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied, yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. 
She gets completely and totally plundered. And you have to remember, the problem that God has with the Assyrians, we're going to see, is that they were a nation that wouldn't just go and attack other countries, other cities, other kingdoms. They would attack them and take everything of value from them, empty out their storehouses and bring them back to Nineveh itself. Not only that, but they were set up on the main trade route and therefore they were, they were involved in, their merchants were involved in going out and acquiring even more for the city as a city of great trade. And so their wealth was unmatched by anything in the, in the world. In fact, if you had added up all the wealth of the entire known world at that time, including Egypt, because remember they've sacked Thebes, which is the, where like Karnak and I forget the name of the other great big temple that's down there. Um, basically the city where all of the pharaohs are buried down in Southern Egypt, they've sacked that. So all of the wealth of the known world is, is held in this city and it is sacked everything is gone and the people that have sat there and enjoyed that for generations now it's all been taken away their hearts are melting their knees are knocking and that's what it's referring to here from 11 to 13 where the where is the den of lions and the feeding place of young lions where the lion lioness and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them the lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Lions held a, a, a huge um, place in the culture of Assyria and in the Middle East. These lions were Mesopotamian lions, so not quite as big as the African lion. And, and you'll know it's, it's an Asian lion or the Mesopotamian lion because they'll have the mane, but their mane will extend down their belly. And so they have the long hair on their belly as well, if you ever see images like that. Lions in that day and age, this would have been the lion that David would have killed. He would have killed one of these types of lions. Um, they're bigger than our mountain lions, but not as big as an African lion or a Bengal tiger, something like that. Um, in fact, lions in that area were there until about 100 years ago. Um, there were still lions that could be hunted in that area. Well, in the kingdom of Assyria, everything the king controlled, no one was allowed to kill lions except for the king. They were for him and for, for his sport. And they would go out on their chariots or horseback and hunt them with uh, bows, bow and arrow, and that's how he would take lions. Um, and they got to the point where um, they would bring them back and they had arenas, much like Rome had. They'd have these arenas, again, well before the time of Rome, where they would bring the lions into the arena and the king would go in and hunt the lion, either again on horseback or chariot, or even on foot. And one of the reliefs, one of these stone carvings that they had inside this palace I told you about last time, shows the king doing this and behind him then stands one of his bodyguards who's got a great big long spear. So the lion's toast if he tries to attack. So you have this, this basically it, was a, it wasn't really a worship of lions, but it's certainly a reverence of who the lion was. They used lions and winged lions on a lot of their gates. Um, to stand guard over the city, and they had a lot of respect for the lion. And what this is talking about is that 
the lion in, in, in a serious treatment of the nations around them, not only did the lion kill enough or go get enough prey to feed his young, but he killed enough also for his lionesses and then went around and filled his, killed enough to fill his lairs full of prey and his dens with torn flesh. This is talking about the extent, you didn't just do this to keep your country stable and protected. You went out and you killed enough to get your children fat, your wives fat, and have even more left over, far more than you ever needed. It's a judgment on them, not just of what's going to happen to you, but what's going to happen to you because of what you were doing, because of your attitude towards others and the way you treated other nations. Again, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. It's God who is attacking them and, in, and is destroying them. He's going to cut off the prey from the land, so no longer the voice of your mess messengers be heard. He's going to completely cut off anything in the land that can have value. Not only am I going to destroy you, but your ability to regain and go back out and hunt and gather again is going to be completely cut off because I'm even going to cut off your source of all the wealth that you've gathered in. So again, chapter two is this prediction of the overthrow and what it's going to be like when God overthrows the city through Babylon. Then chapter three, we have this judgment of Nineveh and it starts with woe, woe to the bloody city. Completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. So we're gonna see the reasons that God has judged Nineveh, that's, that he's judging Assyria. And it starts with this bloody city. The fact that they were, and we're going to get into this, they were so vicious and awful and evil to everything around, everyone around them. The way they treated the people they captured, the way they treated the cities they sieged, is something that God will not tolerate. God judges nations. I think that's another thing that's really important to note. And if you live in that nation, you will be faced with what judgment that nation earns. I'm sure there were some nice people in Nineveh. I'm sure there were nice people in Thebes. But they were, both those nations were judged. And, and Nahum teaches us very clearly whether it's God's own people that God judges, the nation of Israel. By his own people, I mean the nation of Israel. Um, or it's Nineveh. He is going to judge them. He goes on and judges Babylon as well. But Nineveh, I'd point out to you, is a, is a judgment that's even far beyond Babylon. For Babylon survives to be talked about in the future in Revelation. Nineveh does not. Nineveh is completely cut off. It's done after this. But the first woe is because they're a bloody city, full of lies and pillage. And it shows you how they would go about getting their wealth. They would promise protection and then go and destroy a city. They would say, yeah, we'll protect you. But then once they had enough forces built up, they would go out and they would take their allies. And then again, they would take everything from them and bring all the pillaged, pillaged goods back to their own city. Her prey never departs. The, the, 
going out and conquering and killing and destroying never stopped. That's what the city was built upon. It was its industry. Its industry was to destroy others and steal their wealth, including their people and their materials, and bring it back to itself. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheel, galloping horses, and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies, they stumble over the dead bodies. So a description of, of the, the destruction that is coming to her, because, because you're a bl- bloody city full of lies and pillage and, and your prey never departed for you, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be overrun. It's going to be total chaos in the streets. There's going to be a great battle and there'll be many slain and a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They'll stumble over the dead bodies. And we have not only the description that we have from Babylon, because Babylon's the one that did this, and they recorded what happened there. And this is exactly what happens. The king of Babylon talks about the fact that um, he chops up all of the bodies in pieces and has to feed them to the, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, throws them in the river to feed the fishes, burns it. There's just dead bodies absolutely everywhere. But again, this is well before that time. In fact, when they found Nineveh and began, uh, it'd be about 200 years ago, they started the archeology span of the area, um, identified what it was. This is what they found. Just huge mass graves. I shouldn't say mass graves. Huge numbers of dead (laughs) laying in the streets. They're just there, no one to bury them. Everyone who did survive had departed. And then we go to the next, the next reason that God is judging them. Because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. So this is the next reason God is judging them. Because of their harlotries of the harlot and the charming one, the mistress of sorcery. So there's just harlotries and sorceries. And harlotries in the Bible is very often referring to the fact that you are pursuing something that isn't, isn't the true, one true God. You're selling out your soul to a false God and, and prostitution was usually part of that. And that's why these, these things are associated. And sorcery, that's referring to things like magic and the occult. So those are, the, those are the two things that would have been lumped together here because they would have been lumped together in that society. Those things would have been combined. The false religions and the, and the magic and occult would have all been mixed together in one. But it's interesting, the effects of those two things is that the, the, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, Referring to the city as the one that sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. It is interesting that the two foundations of society, the two things that God has given to give us social order, first and foremost, the family, and second, nations, are the things that these two things affected the most of all the people around them. And I would say even affect us today, and we're going to go through some of that. Their effect on the, the society of nations that God has given as a way of having authority over the people to enforce laws and protect people and their property 
That's the role of what a nation would be. And then families where children are reared and your most social interactions and, and are, are conducted, those two things where right and wrong are enforced on a daily basis and where right and wrong are faced on a societal basis, those two things are assaulted by the harlotry and the sorcery. And it's bad enough that this is the judgments God's giving. Now, it's, it's, yes, those things are terrible, but, but Nineveh took it to a new level. And I would say that we as a society are, are trying to get there as fast as we can. It's like, yes, that looks good. Let's do that. We'll talk about that here in a second. Um, but the way God, well, let's, let's touch on that. So um, here's some of the things that come from, from Nineveh. Some of the sorcery and harlotry that would have been present in that day and age. And as I list these things, you can go, oh yeah, I've heard of that. That's still around today. Well, this is where it's all started. First of all, let's start with science. When they looked at the world to try and explain science, rather than give glory to the God who created everything, they would look at the world around them and try to explain it using spiritual and mystic ideas. And where did they get this? Where did they get the idea that you should worship the, the, the not the creator of things, but instead try to find some magical or mystical way, reason for the existence of things? Most of their gods that were associated with this were understood to be demons who were portraying themselves as gods and setting themselves up as gods. So that's where the basis of this came from. In Nineveh, they would have had witches and wizards that would be as we would understand witches and wizards. Those who had magical powers that could interact with the spiritual world and be your guide or cast spells or had potions and all the things that we have associated with witches and wizards. They would have had that. In fact, they would have had, they had written down the different ways you could take somebody and identify a witch. Long before Monty Python taught us how to identify a witch, they were identifying witches in Nineveh. The word of power. Does anyone know what a word of power is? Where you speak something. Well, I hear about it in Christian circles. They speak something, and you know the word of God doesn't return void, and that's that you, can, you can speak a thing, and God will have it happen. Thank goodness we don't do that here. But it's done. Well, that was done back then. That word of power, using the name of your God to produce a dramatic effect on what is around you, came from this society. Vampires. They had, they had people who lived in coffins, and it, they, they could come out not just at night, but other times, and they were known for going around sucking blood. Vampires. They believed in talisman. So a talisman, um, Israel had a talisman, right? Remember, they would, they would see, what is it, the, the what? See, they're too close to Urim and Thurman. Um, they had the two stones that were on the breastplate, and they could go and ask of God, what, what do we do in this situation? 
And we don't, I don't think we have recorded every time they did that, but that was something they had available. Well, in Nineveh, they had something very similar. Now, just as an aside, very interesting, um, when one of the, one of the cultural, I guess, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, um, one of the stories that tradition, that's the word, tradition says when Rachel left her father, remember she hid the idols, the household idols, and when they came looking for him, he's like, I just want my idols back, and she's like, oh, I can't get up because it's that time of the month, and she's sitting on him. There's a, the tradition would hold that those were talisman and the reason she had stole them, and I think they're just trying to be nice to Rachel because I don't think Rachel was a nice person, but the reason that she stole them is that was, she was worried that's how her father would find them is she could ask them. But an example of one of these talisman is they would take, this is horrific, they would take a firstborn son, kill them, cut off their head, brine them, and then basically, so, so put salt and spices on them and then set them out, let them dry, and then take a gold tablet, small gold tablet, put an inscription on it, put it under the tongue, and then whenever you wanted to know the future, you'd go and ask this thing. That's the type of evil that was present in Nineveh. The idea that if you don't bury your dead properly, they will haunt you until they receive a proper burial. You guys have heard of that, right? That's where this comes from. The evil eye. And Lee said she was in Istanbul, and that's a big thing. You get blue stones to protect you, and they have blue stones on everything they sell. The evil eye, that's where this comes from. The evil eye that sees all and knows all that's going on. Um, if any of this is sounding like Something that Tolkien wrote, it's not my fault. <laughs> a magic circle that you draw around yourself and inscribe things on the ground so that you can focus your spiritual power in that one spot to carry something out or to get information, to, to accomplish something or to get information or to have an effect on those around you comes from this time period and from this society. But wait, there's more. The idea that you could cut open an animal, take out its liver, cut the liver in half, and, and read the future out of the liver. So using organs to read the future comes from here. The, the idea of omens. Well, this happened, and this is a good omen. This means this is, some, this is something good that's going to happen. We're going to do great in the ballgame today because, you know, I saw a, a, a dove roosting in the barn, whatever. Those, the idea of looking for omens. Not to pick on Tolkien, but necromancers. Everybody remembers the necromancers, right, from the movies? Okay, so these, these dead creatures running around the earth terrifying everybody comes from here. Basically, all the basis of medieval magic, they've been able to root back to the Assyrian culture. This is what God is judging. And God is going to make a complete and utter fool of Nineveh. He says in verse 5, to get back to the, the text, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
That'd be a terrifying thing. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show the nation your nakedness. Into the kingdoms your disgrace, I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it'll come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? So that's the, that's the punishment they receive. And they, it really does get to a point. So when during one of the crusades, a group of mercenaries goes down to fight in the Middle East and on their way back, they're, they're running away because they, they've, for various reasons, but they're fleeing back, they're, they're retreating very quickly back to Europe. And they pass by the site of where Nineveh was. And there's this mound, these great big mounds that the city's basically buried in sand. And they go around and they ask the people that live in the area, what is this place? And they have no idea. It's not like, oh yeah, that's Nineveh. It was a great city one day. No, it's completely and totally, it's, it's impact on the, on the area around them is completely and totally removed. There's nothing left of what it once was. Nobody even, who even lives in the area know and understand the importance of what that city once was. God completely abased the city and cut it off. And like I said, it wasn't until about 200 years ago that we started uh, the archaeology of the city of Nineveh to find out what that place really was. There were those who, who, who had heard legend that it was once a great city, but they didn't understand at all the significance of it for, for basically 2,000 years. There was no one left to grieve her. They said that only one commander made it out of the city with his troops, and he fled to another city, and they eventually chased him down. And, and conquered the city he ran to. So absolutely nothing left of the people or the city. God utterly destroyed it all. And again, this is being written 40, 50 years before it actually took place. Verse eight, are you no better than Noamon, which is another name for Thebes, which is situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea or, or the Nile and whose wall consisted of the Nile. Ethiopia was her might in Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubin were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity and her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men and all her great men were bound with fetters. Understand that the, the country that, that conquered Thebes, Noamon, was Assyria. So, Nahum is telling them, look, you defeated this incredible, amazing cultural military might <clears throat> down in Africa. Do you really think you're any better than they are? Not at all. Um, Luxor was the other. Is what else. When, if you go down the Nile to see the, all of the old archaeology, the pyramids and everything, this is the area you're going to. We don't know exactly what happened there, but we do know what happened in the same time period to Lachish. Lachish was the second city of Israel. So Jerusalem was the main city and the Assyrians never captured it. Uh, God spared them, but Lachish was. And there's a, a stone relief. I talked about the reliefs in the palaces and these would have been anywhere from seven to 30 feet tall. And they covered 
something like 3,900 feet of the walls inside the palace. Gives you an idea how big the palace was. And these were carved in stone, um, these reliefs, these, these pictures of things going on. And they have a relief of Lachish. And it shows the way they would take off, conquer these cities. They'd build siege ramps and you'd use siege engines that look like, so like a horse trailer, it's curved on the front with no roof. And they'd wheel them up these ramps and they'd have spearmen and slingmen and uh, archers behind there shooting up on the walls. And then they even have carved in the stone like stuff getting poured on them and fire coming down on them from the walls and all this. But the important thing here is what it also shows that when they conquered Lachish, it has them bringing out the prisoners to be deported. But it also shows leaders of the city having their heads cut off. Others of them being impaled, being set alive on stakes, and then others still being held down while their bodies are being skinned. Terrible, awful, evil people, nation, doing these awful things. And that's why it mentions, I think, the fact that, you know, they, they, that her small children were dashed to pieces. They, they killed women and children, again, brings images of what's happened recently in Israel today. The horrors that took place because of Assyria. Verses 14 through 18, then draw, draw for yourself water for the siege, strengthen your fortifications, go into the clay and tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. And they actually have as they were digging this out, they found that as the siege was taking place and as the city was then overrun, there were people in the middle of making these bricks. That's the detail to which Nahum predicted the fall of Nineveh. He predicted that, that they would be in the middle of trying to fortify their city and make more bricks when they were destroyed. Fire will consume you, the sword will cut you down, it will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like swarming locusts. You have increased your traders more than the stars of the heaven. The cre creeping locust strips and flies away. So they describe what they were, even their traders, not just their military, but their traders would go out and basically strip nations of all they had and bring it back. But then he takes that picture of locusts and switches it over to their armies now. Your guardsmen are also like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there's no one to regather them. And this is what God does. If they survived it, they fled. If they survived the destruction of the city, they fled and never went back. God completely scattered them, all their armies, all their noblemen, everyone was gone. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you for on whom has not your evil passed continually. And like I said, it sits there desolate to this day outside the city of Mosul. Now it's an archeology span dig. And I think it's just, God is just reminding the nations of what he has done to a city that was so full of evil. And while, yes, I do mention there's some similarity between what they believed as far as their, their, their mysticism and their sorceries and everything, but boy, be careful with that stuff. 
We can have a discussion about Harry Potter later, but be careful with that stuff. It's not as all fun and entertainment as, as you think it may be. Most important thing to learn here, though, is that God controls the nations. God is, is the one who is in charge. If you turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 10, 5 through 12. There are some hard things in the Bible to know and understand when it comes to the providence of God and his hands and how he controls all things and who he is and, and, and how he gets to do what he does and how he uses bad situations, let's call them. The classic is, is, is Joseph telling his brothers, yeah, you wanted to kill me, but you decided you'd make money off of me anyway, figuring I'd never be seen again, and, and you absolutely destroyed my father's life by telling him I had died. Such we, evil wickedness, he said, yeah, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And it's like, whoa, what do you mean God meant it for good? How is God involved in what you did? The Bible doesn't shrink away from these things. It makes it very clear that God is the one who controls the, even these things. He's not at all the author of sin. Scripture makes that clear to us as well. But let's look at Isaiah 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, that's Israel, and commission it against the people of my fury, Israel, to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those in Jerusalem and, and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I've done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. So what this is saying is that God's people rebelled against them and God needed to punish them. And he went over and he picked up the nation of Assyria and punished his people. That's the picture. I'm not making this stuff up. He picks them up like a rod in his hand, like a staff that he uses to discipline his people. And that, that discipline of his people is to capture all their boozy, booty, seize their plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. That's a literal description. That's not just figuratively, you. oh, we got trampled in the streets. And, and, but he makes it very clear, Assyria, you're not without, you're going to get judged for what you did because it wasn't in your heart to, let's, let's find out what God wants us to do and follow his will. No, they're like, yeah, hey, I want to pillage everybody and I want to destroy everything. That's what their goal is. They don't see that they're actually being used by God. God controls all the nations. And even the nations that rebel against him and are as evil as you can possibly imagine in the way they treat others and even their 
own citizens and the wickedness that is filled up inside them, he still can use them to accomplish his goals. None of us can rebel to a point where we become gods and can accomplish what we want that somehow is outside of the will of God. And that, that should be a hard thing for our minds to grasp and hold on to, that God can be a God who is so good and loving and just, and also we see how he interacts with the nations here in this example of Assyria. That should, that should be difficult for your mind to grasp, but it also should, your mind should also say, yeah, but I know it's true. I think if we follow this, our closing song today is, is as well with my soul. You can't, you can't sing that song without knowing that, you can't sing that song and have it, have it have personal meaning to you and not struggle with the fact that, yes, those things are still terrible that can happen to you in your life, but you still have to turn to God and just say, you're in control and I don't get it. So it is well with my soul. It's all we can hang our hat on. It's all we can rely on. There's the, the great hymn that we were actually heard in the car on the way here. It is well with my soul. Because of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and all this will be set right, we can rest. But until then, boy, we long for that day for sure. This world is an evil, awful place, and man is the one who has got us to that point, but God still will use it to accomplish his goals and accomplish what it is that he has planned. Turn over to Romans. Romans 11. I just want to touch on this for, for, for two reasons. One, because the attack on Israel and by other nations is something that's again, in the news today. And I think, I think we should have a right understanding of how God uses the nation of Israel and be able to rest in that. And he was kind enough to give us um, give us a picture of what he has, has planned for that country. We don't have to guess whether or not Israel will survive. We don't have to wonder whether or not they're going to make it. They still have not accepted their Messiah as king, and until they do, they're going to suffer many injustices, and God will continue to use nations like Assyria and Hamas to drive them to himself. But it will take place. Verse 11 there, I say then, they did not stumble, that's Israel, so as to fall did they. May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. The whole reason that we have the gospel preached to us and we have the opportunity to be saved and are the people of God, it says here in Romans 11, is so that Israel itself will be made jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their, their failure is riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And we don't have to read, you know, you guys are going through Romans also and Sunday school, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but just note that not only is our salvation as Gentiles and the people of God tied directly to what God is doing in Israel, even today, 
but all the goodness that we have now, because that's the way God is working things out, will be even greater when he restores his nation of Israel. And we, we should all look forward to that day. But in the meantime, they continue to reject their Christ, which is, for Paul, was an incredible sadness in his life to see that. And here we are almost 2,000 years later, and they still have rejected their, their Messiah. So God, God controls all the nations, even the nations that are absolutely evil. And he uses them to carry out his plan. And we have to be willing to sit back and acknowledge that and just trust that he has a plan that he's working through towards the future. And even today in this day and age, we see him continue to work towards that. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that these things were written beforehand for our learning, that we can know not only what has happened before and learn from those examples, Lord, but to learn your character. Lord, I pray that you would teach each one of our hearts the fear of the Lord. That it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of God. Lord, and that would cause us to love and pursue you and desire righteousness. I pray that you'd work that out in our hearts, Lord, that you would grant us that, the ability to bring you pleasure and to bring you glory and honor, Lord. As we watch this world march towards its own destruction, Lord, we know that you have not removed your hand, that you continue to have a plan and you'll carry that out. And Lord, because your son died and rose again and now is seated at your right hand, Lord, not only does that have great consequences for our own lives and our own standing with you, our own salvation, Lord, but it also means you still have a plan for this world and you're capable of, of carrying it out. And we look forward to that, Lord. And we respond, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.